0: Good morning. <clears throat> well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, and we're going to continue our study, and we're still going to be in, in chapter 1 this week. Um, I've entitled this message, Hope and Holiness. You know, I think as, uh, as I've pondered this week, I think holiness may be, may be the most misunderstood and, and maligned doctrine in all of Christianity. I think in our culture, Holiness is overwhelmingly used to proceed um, or to describe something derogatory. I suspect that probably all, if not most of us this week, have probably uttered the words holy something. <laughs> probably this week, right? And if someone were to tell you that you were you were acting all holier than now, you probably know this, but that's not a compliment. It's an accusation, right? The Barna Group published a survey on holiness a few years ago, and they titled it "The Concept of Holiness Baffles Most Americans." It said it found that fifty percent of American adults say they know someone they consider to be holy, but the adults that that are most likely are to say that they know someone to be holy. That they believed these people to be holy, as they described them primarily based as possessing a positive attitude towards God in life. Not the highest bar, right? Sadly, it said that less than half of those who identified as born-again Christians believed that God has called them to holiness, less than half. The report concludes by saying realize that the results portray a body of Christians who attend church and read the Bible but do not understand the concept or the significance of holiness. They do not personally desire to be holy and therefore they do little if anything to pursue it. All that to say we might be here a while today. (laughs) Our series title is Hope for Exiles. And I believe our our text today makes the case that holiness is what makes one a spiritual exile. And therefore, true hope can only be found in holiness. So as is our custom, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And again, I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, and today we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, But as the one who called you as holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, <clears throat> the words be holy because I am holy would seem to be unattainable to us. And yet this is stated in scripture not as a not as a goal but as a command. So God, would you, would you help us today to see through your word what it means to be holy? Would you teach us how to begin to live out this most, this most daunting of commands? Would you open your, our eyes through your word to see once again that what is indeed impossible with man is entirely possible with God. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I love it when I get to preach texts that that begin with the word therefore. You see, therefore indicates that everything prior was leading to this. Lawson and Kevin faithfully preached the, the setup sermons to our text today. They've done this over the last couple of weeks. And I would say that that if the the apex of this chapter is be holy as I am holy, then the last two weeks as as they preached through what came before, they were answering the why question. Why should we be holy? Today, we get to answer the how question. How do we do that? So let's review for just a second. Earlier we read in verse three, it says, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Therefore, therefore, be holy as I am holy. Verse five, we read, you are being guarded by God's power th- through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Verses six and seven, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. That's just a sample. We could There's several more that we could, have, we, could, we could pick out in verses one through 12. But the point is that, that Peter has told us why we are being called to be holy. And today our text will answer the what and how questions. And of course, before we can understand how we are to be holy, we first have to get a handle on what it means for God to be holy. And then we can begin to understand what it means for us to be holy. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kodesh, which when used in association with God, it refers to his his otherness, to his being set apart. It means that there is nothing else in the universe that is like him or is his equal. God himself describes his holiness in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, of course, that would seem to lead to a potential problem when applied to God's command for us to be holy as He is holy. Because obviously, if we could achieve God's standard of holiness, then God would no longer be holy because He's no longer set apart from His creation, right? So clearly, we're not called to be holy in the same way that God is holy. Instead, I think it's a, it's a like-ass comparison. As God is completely set apart from all of his creation, we, as his cho- chosen children, are called to be set apart from the rest of humanity, primarily by our singular devotion to God alone. Tim Keller says that for someone or something to be holy means that it is wholly dedicated to God, completely dedicated to God. That is why inanimate objects of the Old Testament temple were described as holy. Not because they were without sin. It's because they were created and used exclusively in the service of the temple. As were the priests. They wholly belong to God. And we are to be unique and set apart from the rest of humanity. It's what Peter means when he refers to his listeners as strangers and exiles. He's not primarily talking about their geography. The good news for us is the same things that made them set apart in their culture still apply to us today. So for the rest of our time today, I want to dedicate it to breaking down Three commands that we see in this text. In this passage, we see three imperatives that I believe those three imperatives describe how we are to be holy. The first command is found in verse 13. It says, Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're called to be holy in our hope. Now the hope described here is is this is not a this is not a wishful thinking kind of hope. This isn't like I hope it, it doesn't rain tomorrow or I or I or, or I hope the, the Texans beat the Ravens this afternoon. That's wishful thinking. Just kidding. <laughs> Did I say that? Uh, this hope is a this hope is a take it to the bank, all in assurance that that since God has been faithful in the past and he's faithful in the presence, then we can set our hope that he will be faithful in the future. I love as we read earlier in verse five of this chapter, it says that we have a hope that is what? It's being guarded by the power of God. Can you really ask for better assurance than that? Guarded by the power of God. God. And that's why it says, it sets your hope completely. Completely. This is where the holiness comes in. Holiness is all in hope. Holiness doesn't try to, to kind of split your, your, your hope and, and the pleasures of this world. To do, to do just enough to appease God so that if there's an eternity you're covered there as well. I think the heart of holiness echoes the words of 1 John that says, do not love the things of the world or the world. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. He's saying, don't hope in the world or the things of this world. That's not where your hope should be. Not even part of it. God calls us to set our hope completely on grace. Grace. That's what it says. I think this is so crucial because the world is full of people who I think that they, they hope they're going to heaven when they die. I, I think there's some people probably even maybe even hope in it entirely. But what Peter wants these exiles to remember is what makes their hope set apart is hope and grace. Hope and grace. You see, human history is full of those who, who I think will have frantically tried to stack their spiritual resumes with, with good deeds and sacrifices, indulgences, pilgrimages, sacraments, rituals. And they do all this with the hope that, that their good deeds will, will somehow outweigh their, their evil deeds, And thus it will appease God and and, and will earn entrance into heaven rather than than hell. And Peter is telling these exiles, he says, be set apart. Don't be like that. Don't put your hope in the world and don't put it in your righteousness. That's That's how the world does it. Put yours in grace. God's extraordinary, unmerited favor to those of us who deserve nothing but God's unabated wrath. There is no holiness without humility that is born out of a profound acknowledgement that as we read in the in, in book of Ephesians where it says, we have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Put your hope in grace. How do we set our hope completely on the grace being brought to us? Look at verse 13 again, the very beginning the clause prior to this to the to the to the command is with your minds ready for action be sober minded with your minds ready for action be sober minded it starts with your mind hope begins in your mind it's what you believe you have to set to set your hope holy means you have to clear your mind of everything else don't don't think, don't dwell about other things. What else do you put your hope in today? Be honest. Is your hope partially, if not mostly, maybe in making it to retirement? To live a life of leisure? Is your hope to be able to climb to a certain rung of the corporate ladder? Maybe to get into the college of your dreams, to get on the right sports team, to get married, to get pregnant, to see your favorite team win a championship without cheating? Is, is your hope in, in maybe the upcoming election, a vaccine for COVID, a Supreme Court justice? Or maybe hope for a day when, when, when you no longer have to wear a mask or social distance. We are set apart from the world even when, our, even when our immediate hopes look different from the rest of the world. By grace, he has given us a hope that is imperishable. This hope is undefiled, it's unfading, and it's waiting in heaven for us. Be set apart by hoping entirely in that. And that leads to the second command that we see in verse 16. 14 through 16, sorry. Beginning in verse 14, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, You also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now to be fair, our behavior is what we we most commonly associate with holiness. I think too often holiness um, is defined more by what we don't do than what we do. I grew up in a church where holiness literally got boiled down to, don't drink, swear, smoke, or chew, or associate with those who do. And also don't wear shorts, dance, swim with the opposite sex, or go to movies. Don't gamble, and for heaven's sakes, don't play any games with face cards. I'm not even kidding about that. (laughs) Holiness was measured by the degree by which you avoided these and other activities. Now there is no doubt that God has called us to be set apart in our behavior. So the question we need to answer is how are we to be holy in our conduct without crossing over into legalism and defining our holiness solely by our behavior? And I think verses 14 through 16 provide the answer to that question. The first clue is in the first three words of verse 14. As obedient children. Now some of you have translations that actually use the original Hebrew idiom, which is children of obedience. As children of obedience. And I love this because I think it vividly speaks to our nature and how we are called to be set apart. I think you see the beauty of this if you contrast it with with verse 14 of Ephesians 2, which refers to our past way of life. And it says, Now you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked in times past, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working within the children of disobedience. See the contrast? Peter is telling his readers, being born again means that your very nature is different. You once were sons of disobedience, but now by God's grace, you are children of obedience. You have a new father, you have new genes, you have a new identity. So live according to that new nature. That's what separates true holiness from legalism. You see, legalism pursues holy conduct in order, in the hope of achieving favor with God. Peter is telling his readers that they should be holy in their behavior because they're already children of God. That's who you are. The way we embrace holiness without legalism is by the truth in verse 15 that says, As the one who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. If you are now a child of obedience rather than a child of disobedience, it's only because a holy God called you. It's because before the foundations of the world, God predestined you to be his child. And at some point in your life, he calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Holiness is the fruit of our calling. It's not the basis of it. That's what sets us apart. When it says in verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter, before it is written, Peter is quoting really any one of several passages in Leviticus, it's all over it. If you've ever dared to read Leviticus, You know, it's mostly God detailing how the people of Israel are are called to live as a as a chosen people. But I think the the critical thing that you see on repeat throughout the entire book is that almost after almost every directive that is given on how they're supposed to live, it's followed by the words, for I am the Lord your God, or for I am the Lord. For example, you let's take one example. In chapter 19, it begins by saying, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then no less than 15 times in this chapter alone are the words, I am the Lord your God. And it always follows a specific directive on how they are conducting themselves. And then he says, here's why you do this. Because I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. So be holy. Do this because you're set apart. You're mine. He wants it emblazoned in their minds that the reason he's calling them to live differently is because they are God's chosen people. God says in Leviticus 20, 26, he says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. Isn't that beautiful? What God said to the people of Israel through Moses and said to the Gentiles of Asia Minor through Peter, he still says to us today who've been called by God be holy in your conduct because I, the Lord, your God, am holy and I have set you, I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. So holiness means to be set apart, our holy gods in our, in our hope and in our conduct. And finally, I think we see in the final verses that God calls us to be holy in our reverence. The final imperative, and it says to be holy in your reverence. We see this beginning in verse 17. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, I suspect we would all agree that we probably have room for growth in in, in holiness of our hope and in the holiness of our conduct. But you know, as I I pondered this last section, I I was overcome with the thought that, that, that we in the American church, even among the most... Conservative evangelicals, that we have badly lost our way when it comes to conducting ourselves in reverent fear of the Lord. And by reverent fear, I mean that we are witnessing something so magnificent and so extraordinary that it leaves us speechless, a little terrified. And completely unable to think about anything else. Earlier this year, I read a book by David Platt called Something Needs to Change. And this book reads somewhat like a like a travel log out of a mission trip that David took to the mountain villages in the in the Himalayas and in, in Nepal. And in one section, um, he recalls arriving in a small village. And, and finding that, that he was in, in this village was the only church in the area. And they just happened to be having their church service that night. And therefore, they, uh, he would be able to worship with these people and they asked him to, to speak. But what he soon found out was that, that many of the people that crammed into this little living room that night had hiked up to two hours up a narrow Himalayan mountainside, which meant that after the service, they had to, of course, hike two hours back home in pitch blackness after the service. Now, I've never been to the Himalayas, but one thing I suspect, it's not just dark and high, it's cold. He described the service by saying, by the time everyone arrives, I count more than 50 people on the floor, on the bed, or on top of each other. They will sit in the most uncomfortable positions with smiles on their faces for the next two hours. Two. (laughs) They will sing, clap, pray, and listen intently as I share from Scripture. Platt said in reflecting on the experience, this church has so little of the things you and I think about when it comes to church and our culture. They don't have a nice building. They don't have a great band. They don't have a charismatic preacher. They don't have any programs. They just have each other, God's word in front of them, and God's spirit among them. And apparently, that's enough. I think that is a beautiful picture of what it means to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. I think almost all of us would probably be a little embarrassed to think about what trivial inconveniences have kept us from coming to church maybe even watching the live stream. Yesterday was the, was the memorial service for John Perkle here at Concordia, right here in this auditorium. And it made me smile to think back on times that, that John would be in, in the middle of a, of a chemo regimen. And, and part of those, it was he had also had back surgery during that same time, and, and he was still recovering from back surgery. And yet, during those times, there were so many times that John would still be here on Sunday. He would have his back brace on, and not only would he come, he would usually come early to help set up and help tear down. And then in the middle, he would, he would endure the pain of these, of these plastic chairs, the, the pain that it caused him. And he did it just so that he could worship his God among God's people. That's what it looks like to conduct yourself with reverence during your time living as strangers. Oh, that it wouldn't take a a dread disease or the removal of every comfort and convenience for us to be compelled to worship with God's people. Or that time in the word and prayer would be precious rather than a chore. When we find the church, we find church to be non-essential to our lives. And we find gathering with the saints to be optional, not worth the hassle If we find ourselves in that position, we would be wise to pause and examine our hearts. When we find Bible reading to be almost painful, or time in prayer to be nearly impossible, hear me, church, it's not because the Bible is uninspiring or that prayer is not precious. It's a reflection of our heart. I mean, I I know I've quoted this many times over the years, but John Piper's famous quote, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a profound truth. And of course, this only happens by God's grace. He has to open our eyes to see that he is what is most satisfying to us. We sang it this morning in the the first hymn we sang, "Where though the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. But by grace, we do see his glory and it should lead us to worship. So what is it exactly about Jesus who should make him so supremely satisfying to us? And drive us to reverent holiness. And I think the answer is found in verses 18 and 19 of our text. Look at it. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. I think the key word here is redeemed, redeemed. To be redeemed is to be brought back, to be bought back at a a, a personal cost. This was often referred to slaves whose freedom was, was purchased either by a family member or an outside person who would pay the price of redemption and bring them into their own family. And this is the stunning story of the gospel that the very God who created us would himself pay the incredible redemption price to restore us as part of his family. Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote these words. He said, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In one, there was but the speaking of a word. And the other, there was the shedding of blood. And just in case you still needed one more reason to be filled with reverent awe and holiness, Peter reminds us again in verse 20 as he did earlier in the chapter. He says, he was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, we have the incredible privilege of living on this side of God's stunning plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption wasn't him calling a last minute audible based on, based on man's sinfulness. You see, this plan existed long before human history began. But only those, only those of us who are, who are blessed enough to be born after 33 AD get to see exactly how God would redeem sinful man back to himself through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. So as we move into a time of communion, this is what we've been called to remember. If you sit before me today and by God's grace, you call him your father. If you are no longer a child of disobedience, but a child of obedience, it is only because you were redeemed from your empty way of life. Not with a perishable treasure like silver or gold, but with the precious, precious, unblemished blood of Christ. That's what communion calls us to remember. God saved us by something far more precious than silver or gold. And he did it for an inheritance that is far more precious than the best silver or gold. It's unperishable, undefiled, unfading. And because of this, we are called to be set apart, wholly devoted to God in our hope, our conduct, and our reverence, accomplished only by the power of the Holy Spirit and only through the power of the gospel. And that in itself should fill us with hope because it's not us. So to close, I wanna wanna read a segment from, I think this is my favorite Puritan prayer in 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 the book we love here, The Valley of Vision. And this prayer is entitled Love Lusters at Calvary. And I wanna read this because I think it beautifully summarizes why God deserves nothing less than for us to be wholly dedicated and devoted to him because he has demonstrated such stunning devotion to us. Listen to this. Enlarge my heart. Warm my affections. Open my lips. Supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. Their grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son and made a transgressor, a curse and sin for me. Their infinite punishment was due and infant atonement was made. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. He was stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed a thirst that I might drink he was tormented that I might be comforted he was made a shame that I might inherit glory he entered darkness that I might have eternal life All this transfer, your love designed and accomplished. Oh, that my every breath might be a static praise. My every step buoyant with delight. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Pray with me. Holy Father God, would you would you make us holy as you are holy? God, it is not for lack of reasons that we don't engage in holiness. We couldn't possibly count the reasons that you have given us for us to be holy, to be wholly devoted by to you in our hope, our conduct, our reverence. So God, would you would you open our eyes again? God, would you help us see your holiness? Would we stand in awe? Would, would just the thought of you, the more we think of you, would it literally drop us to our knees in awe? That you, the creator, holy God of the universe, is mindful of us. You love us. You Redeemed us. What a thought. God forbid that it would leave us with anything other than just breathless awe and wonder and reverence and holiness. God, may our lives be set apart because it's the only way we can possibly respond to such an incredible love, such an incredible God. God, make this true in our lives today. And it's in your name we pray, amen.